disclaimer, this episode deals with the details of multiple sexual assaults. Listener discretion is advised. Within 48 hours of 18-year-old Retha Stratton's brutal murder, her killer was caught. The case against him seemed airtight, and her family knew justice would be served. But they couldn't have foreseen that Texas law meant they would be spending two decades in and out of court. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crimelines. Okay, so we're back with another episode, and just a quick reminder that any ad you hear that is not in my voice is not an ad I specifically approved. They just autoplay, and they are specific to your location. I have opted out of various ad categories, including politics, and those ads are not supposed to play on my podcast unless the person submitting the ad has miscategorized it. So if you've heard a political ad on my show or any other show in the last few months, they very likely were not approved by the podcaster. I'm really hoping by the time you're hearing this that the political advertising will be over in the U.S. for a little bit. But if you do hear something, I just absolutely recommend reaching out to the podcaster and asking them if they approved political ads. If it was approved, feel free to one-star them all you want for it, but please reach out before you do. Here's hoping this is the last time I have to address this, but I don't see a lot of people speaking out about it, except on social media, and I know not everyone is following podcasters on social media, so I just wanted to say it one more time, and I promise I'm going to try not to bring this up again. Let's get into this week's episode. It was recommended by Danette, so thank you so much for suggesting it. It is not a case I had heard of before, and it's one that I think that the audience is really going to be interested in. We are talking about the murder of 18-year-old Retha Stratton. Retha was born in 1963. She was the youngest of AJ and Doris's four children. And she was the youngest by a lot. AJ and Doris joked that they actually had two families. They had two children. And then 14 years later, their daughter Rana was born, and Retha was born four years after her. And because her older siblings were 22 and 18 when she was born, Retha grew up with Rana as her close playmate. But she also loved when her nephews and niece came along. Retha grew up in River Oaks, Texas, which is a small town just outside of Fort Worth. She went to Castleberry High School, where she was a popular cheerleader and a member of the student council. After graduating in May 1981, Retha worked all summer to save up the money to buy her first car. And then in September, she moved out of her parents' home. She was just eager to be more independent. Retha worked as a computer terminal operator at Purina Pet Foods, and she and her best friend since the first grade found a cute little house to rent. While it was technically in Fort Worth and had a Fort Worth address, 
It was so close to River Oaks that most people considered it a part of the town. So that meant Retha and her roommate Amy were minutes from their families. And even better, Amy's sister lived next door. The neighbors really liked Retha and Amy. Though they were young, they were responsible and quiet and neighborly. Retha would do things like bringing cookies over to a neighbor when their son had been in the hospital. Retha had been dating a man named Dale Kinson for about four years. He was a few years older than she was, which didn't seem like a big deal once she was out of high school. But when they first started dating, and she was either a freshman or a sophomore, and he was a senior, her parents were not huge fans. The first year the couple was dating, they mostly just sat on the porch of the Stratton family's home. AJ and Doris were a bit on the strict side when it came to dating. After Aretha graduated that summer, she and Dale did discuss getting married, but they weren't quite ready yet. And towards the end of 1981, they decided to actually take a step back. They would still see each other, but they would also be able to see other people should they want to. Most of the people who knew them assumed that they would end up getting married eventually, but they were young and there was no rush. As far as family and friends knew, neither had actually gone through with the dating other people thing. In early December 1981, Retha and Amy learned that two girls they knew from high school had been raped in their own homes. And it was just a shocking crime in an area that felt very safe. One of the girls was on the cheerleading squad with Retha, and the other was the sister of one of the squad members. And these were just the rapes that they knew about specifically because there were rumors that there were other attacks going on for at least a month. Dale came over to install a deadbolt lock and secure the garage for Retha and Amy. Around the same time, Retha started getting a few obscene phone calls. She would laugh at the caller to show him that he wasn't bothering her, but in reality, she was actually pretty angry that someone would call and just be nasty on the phone like that. But Retha and Amy didn't connect the calls to the rapes going on and just dismissed this as some jerk. But they did have a safety plan in place in December and the beginning of January 1982 because of the sexual assaults. In addition to keeping the door deadbolted at all times, they would make sure that they weren't alone in the house. But after five or six weeks passed without reports of another rape, they started being home alone on occasion. They were still on guard, keeping the door closed and locked at all times. But they didn't stress if one of them got home from work a little earlier than the other. On Thursday, January 21st, 1982, Retha did get home before Amy, and she called her boyfriend Dale. She left him a message, which he returned about 15 minutes later. The two had plans for her to cut his hair that night. 
Retha had done some cosmetology training in high school, so this isn't just a random request. At about 5.15, on the phone with Dale, Retha told him that she was exhausted from work and she wanted to lie down for a bit first. So she told him to come by around 6.30 and they hung up. At 5.55 p.m., 40 minutes after the call with Dale, Amy arrived home. She was surprised to find the front door was not only unlocked, but it was actually cracked open. The two had just barely started being home alone that week, and it seemed like quite the leap to leaving the door open. So Amy cautiously pushed open the door and turned on the lamp that was by that front door, and she immediately saw blood. There were smears on a blue throw rug. There was a little on the lamp itself, and there was some on the walls. Amy immediately left the house and went next door to her sister's house. The two armed themselves with baseball bats, and they went back into the house to look for Retha. They followed the blood trail to the back bedroom, where they found Retha's partially nude body, half in the closet and half in the room. Amy said it looked like the killer had tried to put her body in the closet, but the door popped open. A serrated kitchen knife was sticking out of Retha's chest, and her underwear were wadded up and stuffed in her mouth. Amy and her sister left the house, and they called the police. Amy also called Doris, Retha's mother, who raced to the scene and got there before it was secured. She was able to go into the house, and tragically, she saw Retha's body just covered in blood. And when Dale got there at 6.30 for his haircut, he found the police and fire department all at the scene. He had to be told what had happened, as well as be questioned. After all, he was the boyfriend. And they only had his word that Retha told him not to come over at 5.15. It was 100% believed from the start that Retha knew her killer. There was no sign of a break-in, and she would not have opened the door to a strange man, particularly with how on guard she was. This was someone she trusted enough to let into her house. But Dale never made it to being a serious suspect in this case because of tips that came in. As the police started interviewing neighbors that night of the attack, they kept bringing up that they saw a maroon pickup truck parked near the house around 545. By 11 that night, one neighbor had identified the truck, and he said he thought the truck belonged to Wesley Miller, a 19-year-old who had graduated with Retha. River Oaks had a population of not even 7,000 people at the time, so everyone tended to know each other and would also recognize each other's vehicles. The next day, another tip came in pointing at this Wesley Miller again. The parents of his girlfriend, Roxy, had heard about the murder, and they remembered Wesley had been to their house the night before. 
he asked Roxy to wash his clothes after he had gotten blood on them. Someone had had a bloody nose either during a fight or a football game. Different sources say different stories. And this person's bloody nose had bled onto Wesley's pants. Roxy went ahead and threw the jeans into the washer and didn't really think twice about it until word of Retha's murder got to the family. They turned over the clothes to the police and Roxy made a statement. Roxy told the police that when Wesley arrived at her house around 6 p.m., he went straight into the bathroom and locked the door, which was unusual. When he came out, he had these bloody pants and the story about a bloody nose, so she agreed to wash them for him. And with this, the Fort Worth police were able to have an arrest warrant issued for Wesley Wayne Miller. At 4.30 in the morning on Saturday, so we are talking less than 36 hours after Retha's body was found, Wesley was taken into custody without issue at his parents' house in the nearby town of Saginaw. The truck in the area and the blood on his pants seemed to be very circumstantial. They didn't have DNA analysis yet, so there was no real testing of the pants to match the blood to anyone. So the case seems pretty thin at this point, but they got lucky. Wesley agreed to talk to them. He initially told the investigators he had absolutely nothing to do with Retha's murder, but it wasn't very long before he confessed. Wesley said that he and Retha had been flirting and he was romantically interested in her. She seemed to reciprocate his feelings and invited him over for Thursday evening. He assumed he was going there for sex. Once there, Wesley said Retha came on to him, but then she backed off, and he respected this and also backed off. A few minutes later, she made advances towards him again, and again, she pushed away after they had made out a little. Wesley said that after she pulled away for the second time, he didn't stop, and Retha tried to push him away physically, which resulted in a brief struggle. During this struggle, Retha grabbed towards a ledge that divided the kitchen from the living room. When she did this, a knife fell onto the floor, and Wesley thought Retha must have gone for the knife to attack him with it. So he picked up the knife himself and stabbed her. He said he then lost his mind and kept stabbing her. He then dragged Retha's body into the bedroom. He went to the kitchen to wash the knife off, which removed his fingerprints, before he went back into the room and used the knife to cut her wrists to make sure she was dead. He didn't want her, in his words, to be able to tell on him. Wesley then stuck the knife back into her chest before he left. He drove to Roxy's house to wash up and have his pants cleaned. Retha's family and the police doubted Wesley's retelling of events. They believed the part about him killing her, but they did not believe the motive. 
Retha and Wesley had known each other and hung out in the same social group in high school, but they really hadn't kept in close contact after graduation. Retha never expressed any interest in him, even though he asked her out a number of times. He even wrote in her senior yearbook, I'm glad I got to know you this year. I had fun running around with you. I hope that we can be together more often because I'd like to get to know you better. You're the best-looking girl in our school, and I hope to see a lot of you this summer. Love always, Wesley. So clearly, Wesley was interested in Retha at some point, but no one close to her really had even heard her talk about Wesley, let alone express interest in him. After his confession, Wesley was booked on one charge of murder and issued a $25,000 bond. Though the police believed that this was a sexually motivated crime, there were no signs of rape evident on the autopsy, so rape charges were not added. The state's theory of the crime would be that Wesley attempted to rape Retha, but killed her when she fought back. The overkill in this stabbing was obvious. After stabbing Retha over 35 times, he left to wash the knife, and then he came back and attacked her again. There was rage behind this murder. With Retha being a cheerleader and in the same age group as the previous rape victims, the media started reporting on the possible link between the murder and those rapes almost right away, saying that residents were claiming there were anywhere from 4 to 11 rapes having occurred. The police said they only had record of two, and both were older teens who had attended Castleberry High School with Retha and Wesley. The true number turned out to be, allegedly, at least five. We have five who have come forward to report their rapes, and in some way, they either implicated Wesley or he has been a suspect in the attack. Okay, so this is the part where I'm going to tell the stories that we know. So feel free to skip ahead if you need to. I was going to just leave a timestamp in the show notes to tell you where to skip, but I know a lot of people don't read those or they don't know how to find them. So when I'm editing this episode and I have the exact timestamp of where to skip to, I will insert it here. Go ahead and skip to... 29 minutes and two seconds. Okay, so in the situations where I use names, those women have given public interviews with the media, but I am still going to only use their first names. Those who have not given interviews, I'm just not going to use their name. On January 23rd, 1981, a full year before Retha's murder, a cheerleader named Susan was sexually assaulted. She was 16 and home alone when a man walked into her room with a stocking over his head. She started to run, but he caught up to her. 
He physically assaulted her and then attempted to rape her, but for some reason, he did not. He got up and he ran out. Susan reported this to the police, and the police told her that they suspected it was someone she knew. But there was no evidence to go on, so the case didn't really go anywhere. And Susan, now believing this was someone she knew, spent the next year wondering if this person was watching her or stalking her or if she was in continued danger on top of healing from the trauma. Ten months later, in November 1981, a 19-year-old woman in Saginaw, Texas, was raped. She hadn't attended Castleberry High School, but she had been a cheerleader at her high school. Her physical resemblance to Retha was significant, and investigators even commented on it. And her attacker's MO matched Susan's case. The woman was home alone at the time, the man wore something to cover his face, and in this case, he left a fingerprint behind. After Wesley's arrest for Retha's murder, they took his prints and they compared them, and his thumbprint matched what was left at the scene in Saginaw. Then on December 9th, 1981, 18-year-old Lisa woke up when her bedroom door opened between 10.30 and 11 at night. A man wearing a red ski mask with a stocking over the ski mask was standing there. He jumped on top of her and there was a small struggle and then the man raped her. When he fled, Lisa called the police. And again, the police officer responding to this attack was pretty sure that the attacker knew his victim. He had walked into the house and passed Lisa's mother, who was disabled. She was unable to get up to stop the man or to call for help. Unless someone knew that about their family, he would not have risked walking right by her to get to Lisa's room. That attacker knew Lisa's mother would not be able to call for help. 100% this was someone who knew Lisa. But Lisa couldn't identify him except to say that he had the same build as Wesley Miller. And by this she meant a football player with muscular arms. The officer even wrote this down in his report. This is what she said. She compared the body type to Wesley specifically, by name, that night. Neighbors had seen a man running through the neighborhood around the time the rapist would have been fleeing, and the police made a composite sketch based on these witnesses. However, for some reason, Lisa was never shown the sketch to confirm anything. The next night, on December 8th, around the same time of night, the rapist struck again. His victim lived across the street from Lisa. She wasn't a cheerleader like the others, but her sister was. Her sister was Wesley's girlfriend. After both of the attacks, Lisa was over at Roxy's house talking to the sister and the father about what had happened. And they realized their stories were identical, the red ski mask, the stocking over it, 
and the build of the attacker. Lisa mentioned that the man had arms like Wesley's. So Roxy's father had Wesley come to where they were talking, and he pulled his arm over and said, you mean it looks like this? The dad was just clarifying the information. His daughter had been attacked in their family home, and he wanted this guy caught. But Wesley pulled his arm back and left the room immediately. They didn't think too much of it, but Roxy seemed to wonder because she reportedly asked Lisa if she thought it could have been Wesley. Could Wesley have been the man who raped her? But they both ended up dismissing the idea. Wesley was not some violent rapist. He was their friend. He was a nice guy. But the police officer who was responding to these attacks clearly thought Wesley should be a suspect. He wrote on the bottom of that composite sketch from the night of Lisa's attack, believed to be Wesley Miller. However, no one questioned Wesley, and the cases were honestly just not investigated properly. These two rapes back-to-back were the ones that Amy and Retha had known about. The next rape Wesley was a suspect in occurred on January 14, 1982, a week before Retha's murder. In this case, a 23-year-old woman in Sansom Park, which is another Fort Worth suburb, was in a laundromat alone when a man entered. He pushed her into another room and sexually assaulted her. Unlike the other crimes, he did not wear a mask, and he didn't need to because the woman didn't know him. This has the markings of a crime of opportunity. Now, after Wesley's arrest for Retha's murder, the woman picked him out of a lineup as her attacker. Now, the fifth victim that I want to talk about, her story kind of weaves in and out of these other stories. She was a 35-year-old River Oaks woman who came forward. In October 1980, before any of the other known attacks, she began getting harassing phone calls, similar to what Amy said Retha was getting leading up to her murder. The night of the second creepy phone call, this River Oaks woman and her husband woke up to the sounds of someone in their house. They got up and they found their front door had been forced open and her purse and his wallet were on the floor. It looked like they may have interrupted a robbery, but it didn't look like the intruder had gotten away with anything. In the morning, though, they realized that he did. He took some of the wife's underwear. Of course, this was reported to the police, as were the phone calls, because they continued. The police tapped their phone, but they were never able to trace these calls. In late October 1981, which is a year after the first phone call, this woman woke up around 2.40 in the morning to a man lying in her bed with her. Her husband was at work. When she woke up and startled, the man began laughing. She tried to get out of the bed only for him to grab her and pull her back down. 
the man threw her on the floor in front of the bedroom closet and pulled out a knife. With the knife to her throat, he threatened her and threatened her daughter, who was in the other room. According to the police report, the man molested her but did not rape her. As he left, he threatened again to hurt her daughter if she went to the police. After this incident, the woman did not hear from the obscene caller again until December 6th, the day before Lisa was attacked. And he just laughed into the phone. Two days later, the day of the attack on Roxy's sister, he called again and said, you have disobeyed me, you need to be punished. The final call came the day before Retha's murder. The caller just yelled a Spanish expletive into the phone repeatedly before hanging up. It would not be easy to connect Wesley to all of these attacks or to the obscene phone calls. But it can't be a coincidence. Multiple calls came to that one woman on the day or day before a rape. Or that Retha was also receiving phone calls leading up to her murder. There is one piece of purely circumstantial evidence against Wesley to connect him to the whole thing. The rapes of people with connections to cheerleaders or cheerleader programs in the area and the obscene phone calls stopped with his arrest. But that is not enough to hang a conviction on. So while Wesley was suspected in all of these sexual assaults, he was only charged in two because two of them had evidence connecting him. He was charged in the Saginaw case because of his thumbprint at the scene, and he was charged in the laundromat case because the victim identified him in a lineup. And as you can imagine, the murder of the well-liked former cheerleader shocked River Oaks, and then the arrest of Wesley Miller compounded that shock. Wesley had also been popular in high school. He was a smart and focused varsity football player. He was voted best all-around senior just eight months before killing Retha. In Wesley's junior year, which would be the year preceding the first known attempted rape that he's a suspect in, the Miller family went through a life-changing ordeal. Wesley's father was in a train accident. He survived, but he had lost his leg and he suffered brain damage. He was unable to work, and Wesley's mother had to go support the family on not a whole lot above minimum wage. Wesley, who had always been very close with his father, really struggled with the changes in both his father and the family situation. His family and friends saw his struggles, but he did continue to, from the outside, appear to do well. I think the media's dive into his father's accident and the impact that had on Wesley is an attempt at possibly understanding what happened here. It was and continues to be very difficult for people to understand how someone who appears to have it all can be a rapist. Research has shown that serial rapists are narcissists. That's pretty much what they have in common. Aside from that, 
The motives vary. The backgrounds vary. The lifestyles vary. Maybe Wesley did feel out of control with the situation at home, and he was trying to exert control and dominance over these women. Rape is often about power and control. But there is also a theory that some serial rapists actually have a paraphilia where the non-consensual nature of the act is what sexually arouses them. In those cases, the victims are almost always strangers to the perpetrator. In this case, Wesley's alleged victims were mostly people he knew, and he didn't complete the sex act in most of the cases, according to the police. So the motive definitely does sound like it's more about power and control than sexual arousal. Understanding Wesley would first require him to admit that he's a rapist, which he was not about to do, and then to seek help, which we'll get into that part later. Wesley still needed to be tried and convicted on any or all of the charges against him, the one murder case and the two rape cases. The murder case would be tried first. It was initially set for April 1982, but three months was not enough time for the defense to prepare. It wasn't even really enough time for the state. They were having trouble getting all of the evidence processed and then turned over to the defense in time. So the trial ended up being delayed until October. The only really interesting thing that happened in the pretrial period was Wesley's bond. It was initially set at $25,000, which would be almost $70,000 today. How often do we see a murder case get such low bond? It's not really often, and let me just say, the public wasn't having it. A flood of complaints came in, and two people even called the court, anonymously, of course, and said that they were going to kill Wesley themselves if he bailed out of jail. So the judge raised it to 100,000, then it went up to 200K, then 400, then back to 200, and it was just a yo-yo. It seemed his defense team was spending a lot of time trying to get that bail lowered. The Miller family reportedly had about a $700 a month income, so it was going to be very difficult to pay any amount of bond, especially since the court made it a cash bond which meant they couldn't use their house or any assets as collateral. So Wesley was going to sit in jail while waiting on trial. And the trial itself was pretty straightforward. The state had the confession, which the defense failed at getting thrown out. They accused the police of coercing it by promising Wesley that the court would go easy on him if he confessed. The judge ruled that the confession was admissible, but the defense was allowed to argue that it wasn't freely given to the jury. And this confession was incredibly important because it was the strongest thing against Wesley. So the state called the witnesses who saw Wesley's truck. They had Roxy testify about cleaning the blood out of his pants. But this was pre-DNA, so they were only able to match blood type. Retha had type A positive blood, and Wesley had O positive. The blood on the jeans, one of his shoes, and his shoelace were all type A. But type A positive blood is the second most common type in the U.S., with 35% of the population having it. 
And Wesley never claimed it was his blood. He always said it was someone else's. So the state used the witnesses to the truck being there and the timing and the washing of the bloody jeans to bolster the confession. But the confession was the case. The defense, of course, argued the confession was not valid, and they criticized the investigation. They spent a lot of time pointing out all the avenues the police did not pursue. For instance, three dozen hairs were found on Retha. Some were on her body, some in her hands, and some on her clothes. The hairs that did not belong to her also did not belong to Wesley, not even one of them. The defense accused the police of not even trying to match the hairs once they didn't match the defendant. And that is a pretty fair assessment. However, they had a confession from someone who knew details of the crime and the scene that the killer would know. So no, they did not spend a lot of time trying to prove that Wesley was possibly innocent. The defense did want to call an expert to walk through the crime scene photos and explain how Wesley's version of events in his supposedly fake confession didn't match the blood evidence, but the judge did not allow this in. Wesley did not take the stand, and the defense ended up just calling three witnesses on their side. They leaned most heavily on their cross-examination of the state's witnesses, particularly the police officers. But in the end, they could not overcome that confession. Wesley was found guilty on October 21st after a two-week trial. The state asked for life in prison, but the jury gave him 25 years. Not 25 to life, a flat 25 years. At the latest, Wesley Wayne Miller would have to be released in 2007 when he was 45 years old. This horrified the family of Retha and the rape victims. They believed Wesley was a serial rapist who had escalated to murder and would be a danger when he was released at the relatively young age of 45. They also knew he had a chance at getting paroled earlier, but they hoped the rape charges, which had yet to be tried, would add some years onto his sentence. It could have made his sentence literally decades longer. But then Wesley struck a plea deal. He pleaded guilty for burglary with intent to commit rape in the Saginaw case, the one where he left his fingerprint behind. The other charge was dropped, and he got 20 years. Except this did not mean any additional time, since Wesley was serving the sentence concurrently with the 25-year sentence. And if that wasn't enough, Retha's family was stunned when they found out that Wesley had first been eligible for parole in October 1984, just two years and 10 months after his arrest. The family had not been notified. They didn't learn that Wesley had been up for parole in 84 until 85 when he had his second parole hearing. 
parole was denied, and it would keep being denied for years, thanks to Retha's parents, her sister Rana, and Lisa, one of the rape victims. They kept sending letters, petitions, and even crime scene photos to the parole board. They wanted the board to know who this man was and what he was doing in 1981 and 1982. To believe that Wesley had somehow paid his debt to society or rehabilitated in a couple of years was ridiculous. And they managed to get parole denied multiple years in a row. But then there was a loophole in Texas law. Texas had a prison overcrowding problem, as did a lot of places, in part thanks to the war on drugs. And they started giving mandatory parole after the number of days the inmates spent in jail and the number of days they had good conduct both equaled one-third of their sentence. So someone who spent their entire time in prison on good conduct and not getting in trouble, they only had to serve one-third of their sentence. So a guy like Wesley, who did horrific things, but presented as an obedient rule follower in prison, well, he hit that one-third of his sentence quickly at just over eight years. And this was mandatory release. No one could stop it. There was no parole board making a decision. They tried to stop it. The law was even changed in Texas that this one-third sentence parole did not apply to violent offenders. But they didn't close this loophole until 1987. So everyone convicted under this law from 1977 to 1987 were still eligible for that mandatory release, even if they were a violent offender. Some infamous Texas killers actually fall into this. Coral Watts, the serial killer, was convicted in 1982. He was scheduled for release in 2006 under this mandatory release program. Instead, Michigan charged him with a murder up there in 2004, which he was convicted of. This meant that Texas released him under the mandatory law, but he just went up to Michigan to serve that prison sentence. Janine Jones is another one. She was a nurse who injected children with medications when she was supposed to be giving them vaccines. In 1985, she was convicted of killing one baby and nearly killing another. She was given a 99-year sentence. As her mandatory early release date of 2018 neared, the DA indicted her on additional charges related to other suspected victims. In January 2020, she pleaded guilty to one charge in exchange for the others being dropped. And this will keep her in prison nearly 20 more years, and she won't be eligible for parole again until she's 87 years old. So sometimes we may wonder why DAs don't charge all the cases and hold some back. And this is one reason that decision occasionally is made. 
if the defendant has a successful appeal or they find some other way to get out of prison, they can then charge them on something else down the road. But now we have a situation where they don't have any untried charges for Wesley Miller to keep him in prison. The rape cases, frankly, did not have enough evidence to bring him to trial. None of the other victims could positively identify him because their attacker had covered his face. Forensic evidence was non-existent because the rapes occurred prior to DNA analysis, and even if they kept the rape kit swabs, a Fort Worth Star-Telegram article from 1982 said that most of the rapes weren't, quote, completed, meaning he did not leave semen behind. So testing those would do little. Because his sentence was 25 years, Wesley would be released in 1991 at the age of 29. And no one could do anything about it. This was the law. Yes, the law changed, but you were held to the law at the time you committed the crime. So the family did what they could to keep him out of River Oaks and away from River Oaks. They managed to get 13 counties to refuse to accept him into any of their halfway houses. Wesley ended up all the way in Houston first, but then they had to move him three times over complaints, and he landed in Wichita Falls. Retha's sister, Rana, called the DA there to let him know who Wesley was, what he had done, and she really just opened a line of communication should Wesley reoffend or be suspected of it. And that's pretty much what happened about a year after he was paroled. A Wichita Falls woman was unloading groceries from her car when a stranger started running towards her. She immediately turned and ran into the house, locking the door behind her. She told her husband what happened, and he went outside to confront this man. When he got out there, he saw the guy was climbing into a pickup truck. So the husband and wife get in their car, and they follow him. They wanted to get a good look at him, but what they managed to do was get his license plate. The police ran the plate, and it came back as registered to Morris Miller, Wesley's father. Shown a lineup, and the couple was able to pick Wesley out. Wesley was arrested and charged with attempted assault. Because the DA had been contacted about him already, he was ready to throw the book at him. He tried the case himself rather than passing it off to someone else in the office, even though a DA wouldn't normally handle an attempted assault case. But this case managed to get Wesley locked up for a few more years. He was then released again in 1997 on parole. He had to wear a GPS ankle monitor and participate in sex offender treatment. But they couldn't find suitable housing for him, so he ended up living at the jail, even though he was paroled. He was only allowed to leave for counseling or, if he had one, a job. Otherwise, he was locked in a cell. Wesley was supposed to stay in this placement for six months, and if he complied with all the terms, he would move to a halfway house or approved housing in the area. 
There was a laundry list of other restrictions, but it didn't matter because Wesley refused the very basic one of sex offender treatment. He denied he was a sexual offender, even holding a press conference about it. He said the requirement was unfair because he hadn't been convicted of a sex crime, which is technically true if you are talking about being convicted by a jury or a judge. But Wesley did plead guilty to burglary with intent to rape. Guilty pleas are convictions. He was convicted of a sex crime. Wesley's not understanding the law doesn't change the law. But because he refused to participate in that treatment, Wesley was not able to transition to a halfway house or get a job or get an apartment. So Wesley Miller was sent back to prison again for not complying with the requirements of his parole. In 2004, he was paroled for the third time, and again, it was to the county jail. At this point, he's 41 years old. It was the same exact requirements as before, but six hours after arriving, the sheriff called the state prison and told them to come get him. Wesley again refused the sex offender program. But at this point, Wesley had just a few more years until full release. His 25-year sentence would be up in 2007, and then they had to release him free and clear. No parole, no GPS monitor, no restrictions. Except in 1999, Texas passed a civil commitment law. Retha's family were instrumental in pushing and advocating for this law. This would allow the state to continue restrictions on sexual offenders after they've served their time. This is a controversial law in all 20 states that have it. It's compared to the movie Minority Report, where they used psychics to predict who will commit crimes and then locking people up before they could commit that crime. Under civil commitment, a jury or a judge is acting as the psychic, predicting which offenders might reoffend and punishing them for that. In 1997, the U.S. Supreme Court did rule on civil commitments and said they were fine, as long as it wasn't continued detention. They can't toss perpetrators into a prison environment and use civil commitment as a way to lengthen a prison sentence. It can only be used as part of a rehabilitation or treatment program. In Texas, there are two basic requirements for civil commitment. One, they would have to show that the perpetrator, Wesley in this case, was an ongoing risk to society. And two, he had to be convicted of at least two sexually-based offenses. And the issue here is that Wesley, as you remember, was only convicted of one. So the first hurdle would be to convince a jury that even though Retha had not been raped, that her murder was sexually motivated. That would count for the second offense. These proceedings occurred in October 2006, and the testimony lasted for four days. The state had experts testify that this did have the hallmarks of a sexually motivated murder. 
One point made was that Retha had been stabbed repeatedly in the left breast. It's unusual to see that many stab wounds concentrated on one side. Most stabbings are aimed towards the center of the chest or they're more equally distributed. But in this case, Wesley was focused on her breast. And then she was left partially nude with her underwear in her mouth. All of this indicated sexual motivation. But the defense called an expert to rebut all this, and he said it's impossible to look at the crime scene and discern the motivation. He actually said he doubted that if this was sexually motivated, Wesley would have been able to resist the urge to rape Retha. But the state's theory of the case is that he didn't resist the urge and that she was murdered when she fought back against his attempt to rape her. And in this proceeding in 2006, Wesley's confession featured just as prominently as it had in 1982. Wesley conceded now that he had committed the crime, even though his defense at the first trial said that his confession was false and was coerced, Wesley has since admitted that he was the one who killed Retha. He testified that he was attracted to her and he had gone to her home that night to have sex. But when they had that fight and she was reaching for a knife, that was the impetus for the stabbing, not any kind of sexual assault. But Wesley said he didn't remember actually stabbing Retha. He remembered the fight, and then he remembered her lying there, and he had the knife in his hand. But he blocked out the actual attack. A psychologist who had interviewed Wesley does not believe him. He has such clear memories on either side of the attack that he believes Wesley remembers everything that happened. An interesting thing Wesley said was that the 25-year sentence he was initially given was too light. He had committed an awful crime, and he should have been given a longer sentence. He did not think it was fair. But he wasn't given a longer sentence, and Retha's murder was not sexually motivated, so he was also arguing he shouldn't be under the civil commitment. He should be allowed out as he had served his time. But the jury disagreed, and they declared Wesley a violent sexual predator, making him subject to the civil commitment order. So in 2007, when he was released from serving the entirety of a sentence, he was again facing this laundry list of restrictions as though he was on parole. Now, this has since changed. Minnesota had their civil commitment program ruled unconstitutional by a federal judge because it was so much easier to get put in the program and nearly impossible to get out. This was largely due to having a long list of restrictions, which were more than was needed to treat the offender or protect the community. The Supreme Court was clear that civil commitment could not turn into a punishment. And that's a problem Texas had as well. That list of conditions was huge, and it included major things like cutting off your GPS monitor to minor things like any alcohol consumption. Violating any of the restrictions was a third-degree felony. You could land yourself back in the criminal system. A glass of wine at Christmas could get you years behind bars. 
and we see Wesley Miller caught violating a restriction. Because they couldn't find him appropriate housing, again, he was living in a Fort Worth jail, where he met and began having a romantic relationship with one of the jailers. He was not technically an inmate, so this seemed to be a bit of a gray area, ethically speaking, for her. But that's an HR problem and not what we talk about here on Crime Lines. The romantic relationship itself was not a violation of the civil commitment order. Wesley was allowed to date. However, everyone he visited, saw, and had any real contact with had to be approved. Wesley called his girlfriend on her personal cell phone without permission, and that violated that rule. Wesley was arrested for this infraction, which is a Class three felony, and booked into a different jail. While there, his father and brother visited him, and then he racked up to more infractions because they were not on his approved list. Wesley did appeal the infractions, and the court ruled that the visits with his father and brother could not be held against him because he wasn't under civil commitment. He was actually booked into jail criminally. But calling the jail guard that he was in a relationship with did violate the terms. In a plea deal, Wesley was given another 10-year sentence. When Wesley was released again in recent years, like I said, the civil commitment program had changed. Texas had taken away that long list of potential violations in a massive overhaul. And this was around the same time as the Minnesota law was being challenged. So it was good timing on Texas's part. There are now only four possible violations. Contacting a victim, leaving the state without permission, living somewhere that's not approved, and tampering with your GPS monitoring. Additionally, housing in hotel-like halfway houses has ended. Texas converted a juvenile prison in Littlefield, Texas, into a civil commitment center. They're trying to not make it function like a prison, since, as we established, the Supreme Court says they can't. And this is where Wesley Miller currently lives. There is no mandatory release from civil commitment. It can and often does last a lifetime, even though the goal is supposed to be rehabilitation. And while Wesley Miller does whatever he's doing in this civil commitment program, Retha's family and friends have tried to recover from being dragged through this system. They barely had time to grieve before the trial, and then the fight against parole began within a few years. This man had cut short the life of an 18-year-old. He admittedly raped one woman. He is suspected in the rapes of others. Texas parole law at the time meant he would only have to spend three to eight years paying for his crimes. Instead, because Retha's family and the rape survivors refused to accept this miscarriage of justice, Wesley Miller has spent nearly 40 years in the system. Without them, a violent sexual predator would have been freed. Their work, I am sure, 
has saved someone's life. 